Welcome to the Her God Speaks podcast special Tuesday feature called Hermeneutics Tuesdays. Yes, that's Tuesdays with an H, where we are seeking to become better interpreters of the Bible one 10-minute episode at a time. I'm your host, April Spears. Let's learn stuff together. Back around 2005, I went on a mission trip to Uganda, Africa, where I did some teaching at a women's conference. Many of the women at this conference did not speak English, so I communicated through a translator. Now, up to this point, I had never had a cross-cultural experience. For the very first time in my entire life, I was forced to think about something I had never considered, the complexity of human language. I quickly realized that some of the words I commonly use have no equivalent in Swahili. This was astonishing to me. I just assumed that if there's a word for something in English, there must be a word for it in every other language as well. How's that for some cultural snobbery? (laughs) I also realized how often I use idioms, figures of speech that make absolutely no sense outside my American context. I mean, how could I expect my translator to know that where I come from, the phrase, bless her heart, actually means she's kind of an idiot. (laughs) After decades of using hundreds of words every day of my life, I was finally forced to stop and actually think about how words work. That translator had to do way more than convert my English words to the closest equivalent word or words in Swahili. She had to convey the meaning of what I was saying, which is never as simple as a word-for-word translation. I mean, think about it. Just about every word in the dictionary has multiple meanings. And we all know you can't just pick your favorite. The correct meaning is the one that fits the context. Add to that the fact that word meanings can change over time, and you've got yourself one heck of a challenge. What we need to realize is that we face this challenge every single time we read our Bibles. Not only was the Bible originally written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, but it was written in ancient Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. So we're not just dealing with a language gap, we're dealing with a massive time gap as well. Furthermore, the Bible was originally written by and for people in a radically different culture than ours. Considering that words derive their meanings from how they are actually used in a particular culture, we can't write that off. What a word means to us may not be what it meant to them. I've heard it talked about this way on a Bible Project podcast episode, and it was really helpful. I'll link the episode in the show notes. Every human has a mental encyclopedia, a framework for how they see the world. Words and their contextualized meanings are a big part of this mental encyclopedia. The author of a book utilizes an encyclopedia of production. They string words together based on their mental encyclopedia. The reader of a book utilizes an encyclopedia of reception, unconsciously interpreting the words in the book according to their mental framework. Here's the rub. These two encyclopedias of production and reception don't always match. However, the reader tends to assume they do. 
This assumption causes the reader to impose his or her encyclopedia of reception onto the text. The result, the meaning intended by the author gets lost in translation. Let me give you a few examples of how this plays out in common interpretations of some Bible passages. Let's start with Jeremiah 17, 9, which says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? According to our Encyclopedia of Reception, the heart, aside from being a physical organ, is the seat of human emotion. It's where our feelings are generated. If we feel sad, we say that we're broken hearted. If we feel safe and happy, we might say that we're light hearted. If we feel romantic affection for someone, we might tell them that they have our whole heart. If we impose our understanding of the word heart onto Jeremiah 79, what we end up with is a verse warning us to never trust our emotions because emotions are inherently flawed and deceptive. The teaching a lot of us in more conservative Christian spaces grew up with is this. Don't trust your feelings. Feelings are bad. Now, first of all, that interpretation is a huge problem from the perspective of neuroscience, psychology, and biblical anthropology. Our ability to feel is God-given. And those God-given emotions, both positive and negative, give us essential data for wise decision-making. People who regularly ignore or stuff their emotions are not healthy people. There's a world of difference between honoring your emotions by being aware and attuned to what they're communicating and enthroning your emotions by doing whatever in the heck you feel like doing. So much harm is done when that distinction is ignored. But even if you think psychology and neuroscience is a bunch of mumbo jumbo, there's still a good reason to rethink the common anti-emotions interpretation of Jeremiah 17.9. It goes without saying for us that there's a big difference between head and heart. For us, the head or brain is the seat of reason. It's where we do our thinking. It's the source of our good choices because to us, good choices are thoughtful, well-reasoned, smart, and carefully considered. Bad choices, on the other hand, are choices we make based off our feelings. Case in point, for most Christians, the phrase, follow your heart, comes straight out of the mouth of Satan himself. Follow that advice and you'll likely get to spend eternity with him. But here's the thing, you guys. In ancient Hebrew, there is no word for brain. They thought of the heart as the seat of emotion and reason. To the ancient Israelite, every decision was a heart decision. This is why, according to the Bible, it is so important to guard one's heart. According to the ancient Hebrew mindset, it truly is the wellspring of life. It's the control center of everything. It's the place where every decision is made. When Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things, he's not making a categorical statement about the danger of emotions. His scope is much wider than that. He's saying that on our own, humans are fundamentally broken and in need of total renewal from the inside out. 
This weekend, I felt a little anxious about an interaction with my husband. I honored that emotion by closing my eyes and thinking about where I felt the anxiety in my body. I asked myself questions about it. And when I had a little more clarity about why I felt the way I did, I shared it with my husband so that we could process it together. In doing so, we were able to make some progress in an area of ongoing struggle. Now, had I applied the common interpretation of Jeremiah 79, I probably would have tried to brush it off or labeled my anxiety as a sinful response, asked God for forgiveness, and white-knuckled it through my time with Greg. After all, emotions are deceitful and desperately sick. (sighs) How sad and ultimately how damaging that would be, especially since that is not at all what that verse means. Another example that comes to mind involves the words righteousness and justification. Very important words in the New Testament, very central to the Christian gospel. Now, most of us, whether we realize it or not, derive our meaning for those words from the writings of Protestant Reformation heroes like Luther and Calvin. The contribution of Reformation theology to our understanding of words like righteousness and justification is without a doubt a profound gift to the church. But have you ever stopped to consider the fact that Paul never read Luther or Calvin? He died having never heard of the five points of Calvinism. He didn't read or interact with even a sentence of Reformation writing or preaching. Do you know where Paul got his definition of righteousness and justification? the Hebrew scriptures, otherwise known as the Old Testament. And yet, so many camps of Pauline scholarship fail to make any significant connections between the writings of Paul and the Old Testament scriptures that shaped his view of literally every word he wrote. They act as though the Encyclopedia of Reception held by European theologians in the 1500s was the original context of the Bible. It wasn't. In Paul's mind, the concepts of righteousness and justification are so much bigger and so much richer than a judicial transaction whereby God the judge declares a believing individual righteous based on the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now that's certainly an aspect of it, an important aspect of it. But good gracious, we are missing out on so much of who God is and how he works, and what he's up to in the world if we stop there. The righteousness of God is the power of God to make right what has been wrong. It's inseparable from his justice and carries implications that include the salvation of individuals, but extend so much further to anyone painfully aware of systemic evil and injustice throughout the world that seems to go unpunished, that seems to be unresolved, this is incredibly good news. Now, if you want a spicier example, do some research on how the Greek words malakoi and arsenikoites have been translated in 1 Corinthians 6.9 and 1 Timothy 1.10. These words are somehow related to homosexuality, but the translation of these words is not quite as straightforward as most of us have been led to believe. In his chapter on these two words in the book, A People to Be Loved, New Testament scholar Preston Sprinkle writes, let me warn you up front that this chapter is going to be deep. If you don't want to engage in lengthy discussions about the meaning of Greek words, then this chapter will be a bear. 
If you are not willing to perch up in your chair, roll up your sleeves, and turn your phone off for a couple hours to study these two words, then I'd say you should not form a strong opinion about homosexuality. When asked what you think, at least be honest and say, I'm not too sure since I don't want to take the time to understand what the New Testament actually means, end quote. I love that because it gets to the heart of what this whole episode is about. I am not making the claim that the Bible rightly understood affirms gay marriage. I do not believe it does. Neither does Preston Sprinkle, who I just quoted. I bring it up to emphasize that we need to acknowledge the complexities related to the words Paul uses and work hard to avoid oversimplifications. It's a general principle that where there's a lack of care with language, there's a lack of important nuance. And listen, a lot more than good exegesis is at stake here. When the Bible is misread, people are hurt. We could keep going. I've got like five more examples here I would like to share, but I really do try to keep these under 10 minutes. I've not been very successful the last few weeks. Um, But hopefully I've given you enough examples to illustrate how our assumptions about language can really hinder our interpretation of the Bible if we aren't aware of them. That, of course, begs the question, what do we do about this? It's unfortunate that most of us cannot devote the next several years to learning biblical Greek and Hebrew. (laughs) The suggestion that Richards and O'Brien make for overcoming our assumptions about language is to read the Bible in multiple translations. I'm quoting from them here. Translators have different goals. Some English translations follow the grammar, syntax, and voice of the original languages as faithfully as they can, while still rendering readings that make sense in English. Other translators are more concerned that the text be readable, comfortable, idiomatic English. In other words, and to overstate the point a bit, some translations emphasize getting the original languages right, while others emphasize getting the contemporary languages right. For this reason, you can get a good sense of the differences between languages by reading a biblical passage in various English translations. I don't know about you, but I love how doable that suggestion is for all of us. We simply need the YouVersion app or a website like Bible Gateway, and we've got all the translations we'll ever need right at our fingertips. It really is a good time to be alive, you guys. (laughs) Well, I am officially out of time. Richards and O'Brien have so much more to say about assumptions related to language in their book. I have definitely not done it justice here. So if you haven't picked up a copy, I highly recommend you do, or at least add it to your Amazon wish list so that you can get it and read it at some point in the future. Next week, we will start talking about more subtle assumptions we bring with us to the Bible, starting with our American individualism going to be a good one, you guys. Thanks for tuning in. I will see you next week.